0: 20 this weekend. The next weekend's the high, the high is going to be fucking 60.
1: Yeah, that's like here. It's going to go up to the mid 40s next weekend for New Year's.
0: Very
2: normal.
1: Super normal.
2: I mean winter is only supposed to last about one
0: month, right?
1: Yeah, winter's like a two week thing <laughs> and then there's like there's extensions.
0: Well, because I got the double whammy of like there's climate change. So the, the winters are in fact warmer mm-hmm. than, you know, 25 years ago when I was a kid uh, Mm -hmm. and I moved, you know, several hundred miles South closer to the ocean, which also makes it more mild. So like uh, I very much fall into the damn, they just don't have weathers like they uh, winters, like they used to when I was a kid (laughs) these days.
1: (laughs) Well, it's it's even weirder for us because we both move back to where we're from, which is back North. From where we moved not by that much but by a little and uh the winters here are definitely milder overall than they used to be but they're way more dramatic
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i like it because it's much clearer what's going on whereas in pittsburgh it was just icy sidewalks on steep hills and yeah. that was a fucking nightmare
1: yeah in pittsburgh you're fighting the terrain as much as the weather, and it kind of distracts from mm. the actual weather conditions. Whereas in Michigan, it's like looking at the, looking at the the clouds that are heading your direction is a pretty good way to know how your day is going to go.
0: <laughs> <So>. <laughs> fair, very fair. Yeah.
2: Do we want to actually talk about anything interesting, or just jump into it?
0: Well, let's just jump
1: into I'm it. I'm sorry
2: if the weather isn't interesting to.
1: Whether you, or not but... interesting enough for you, try <laughs> the meat and potatoes of our podcast. <laughs> It's your favorite labor podcast. We'd like to welcome you to the show. My name's John. I'm Dan.
2: And I am Lena.
1: And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. It's a great place to learn more about what we talk about on the show. If you are a patron and you don't have stickers yet, just message us on Patreon, and we will try to get them to you ASAP. And if you want to help the show a little bit more, you can leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else conventional wisdom might guide you to help your favorite show. Um, We're going to start with a follow-up with the University of California academic workers who have ratified a new contract ending the largest strike of 2022.
0: Yeah. So uh, last week we had kind of a big breakdown of where the strike had gotten to, various escalations in the form of different kinds of direct action, and then the news that broke that there had been a tentative agreement. Between the UAW bargaining team and the University of California. So, over the last week, there was voting across the 36,000 workers at the two UAW locals that uh, have been, you know, remained on strike after the 25% or so representing postdocs signed new contracts a little earlier. And so, on Friday, December 23rd, just before the holiday, The results of the voting came out, and by margins of 68% and 62%, these were for the two separate bargaining units, the uh, student researchers and grad student workers, respectively, have voted to ratify their new contracts, and so, as we noted last week, there was significant opposition to some of the concessions made in the deal, and you know the numbers kind of bear that out. With you know nearly twelve thousand workers across the system did vote against the contract. Three campuses: Santa Barbara, Santa Cruz. Which, by the way, I believe last week I-, I saw UCSC and said Santa Clara instead of Santa Cruz. Apology for the mistake there. But so, these three campuses: Santa Barbara, Santa Cruz, and Merced stood out as sites of resistance to the TA because each of those three locations actually voted really heavily against it. Oh, at least 65% of their members at those three sites, which are significantly smaller than a lot of the other campuses voted against the tentative agreement. Um, and many workers specifically pointed to the lack of a cost of living adjustment, the relatively low final salary for workers, which ended up being depending on which campus you're at 34,000 or $36,500. Um, and as well, folks uh, questioned the lack of emphasis on improvements for parents, disabled workers, and international students. Yep. However, with all of those objections uh, said, the majority of workers clearly felt that the agreement was good enough to approve it or at least felt that uh, dragging the strike out, continuing to hold out through winter break into... The spring term would not win a significantly better deal than the one that was put together in the TA. And so, speaking with Cal Matters reporter Mikhail uh, Zinstein, uh, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Apologies. Uh, UAW President uh, 2865 President uh, Rafael Jaime said, "Quote: It's really important for all of us to commit to organizing for the long haul. The only way that we're going to win even better contracts is continue to build union power." End quote. Yeah, yeah.
2: I I mean like I think that one of the great things that I also saw in some of the rhetoric was around people saying that like the amount of militancy that was built through this struggle was really uh, inspiring and is Mm -hmm. they're really hoping to carry that on into future battles because there were as you said there were a lot of people who were disappointed in the way that the agreement came even to the to the table or or to a tentative agreement in the first place. And, you know, they wanted to, a lot of the people speaking wanted to kind of avoid disillusionment of these more militant people by saying that, you know, it's important to use this as the impetus to continue to engage, to make sure that if this isn't good enough, that what this really should highlight is the need for a stronger organization and instead of just being like oh the union doesn't do anything which is kind of the classic you know cop-out statement from uh you know people who don't actually want to fight uh and you know which can be really disillusioning to people who do want to fight and build something better but uh the agreement did make significant improvements over what some of the earlier parts of the agreements were. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really clear statement made here with with better conditions than what a non-strike tentative agreement would have been, or actually a ratified contract in this case. So I think that if anything, there is really a, a push for more engagement based on what might be people who are a little unhappy with the way that things turned out
1: sure well and i think that's really critical uh because it's like it's easy to to lob criticisms of unions that don't win all of the demands or all of what you might consider the most key demands but there's a big distinction between when they do it out of like exasperation or just giving up or not really being engaged and when they do it out of like making it a part of a broader long-term strategy to continue to win gains for for their workers and that's like the difference between letting the perfect be the enemy of the good and just using not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good as an excuse to not do anything good And i think it's it it continues to resonate uh with with their base as well
0: yeah because like this is one of those cases where I've seen some people, though thankfully not many. Like, because mo- most of the accounts that I followed during the strike, you know, that were very much in favor of the long haul and and were, and, and were participating in the vote no campaign, they still made it very clear, like, they're not calling this a sellout contract. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's not an appropriate. <laughs> term for this while they disagree with some of the decisions made by the bargaining committee and think that they could have won a better contract they were very much emphasized in their their statements they're like even with you know the contract being ratified and the strike ending that what people need to do is like take the militancy that was built in this strike and don't let it go away and like build off of it and make the union stronger fight Mm -hmm. for a more militant union if you're not happy with the way it came out because it's important to understand that like these are unions are they were, unlike, you know, political parties like the Democrats. This is a w- institution made up of workers and mm-hmm. and it's going to happen where you're going to have people on the bargaining team who disagree over what the terms should be but genuinely in good faith both believe that the, the contract they're pressing for, either the one that was signed or a, you know, potential theoretical one that they're both good contracts right well and it's you know
1: these interior organizational structures that they're building by all coming together in good faith you know even despite disagreements is as much uh, you know something that they should hold on to as a prize of their organizing mm -hmm. efforts as any actual gains in the contract are
2: yeah and these victories wouldn't have happened without the incredible efforts of the 50,000 striking workers over a period of six weeks which is not an insignificant strike
0: yeah absolutely so you know even, even for the folks who, who weren't 100% happy with the deal, there are still a ton of big improvements in there. And yeah, as you said, like UC would not have made these concessions that they ended up making if there was never any strike. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, And to move to our next follow-up, one of the things that we have consistently discussed recently uh, is child labor. And back in July, we talked about how there was uh, Hyundai plants that were caught for employing t- basically 12- and 13-year-olds, minors even that were below the age of which could work in these dangerous situations, well, we are coming to you today to follow up to say that uh, when we talked about how this is likely pervasive, well, we were right. Um <laughs> which sucks. And this is not the same story as the children cleaning the equipment on the kill floors. This is in the car the car plant situation where they're working in like stamping plants for for metal and other sorts of things like that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. they're doing fabrication and and metal stamping. And Reuter found that at least four major suppliers of parts to Hyundai and Kia plants in Alabama have used child labor. So in addition to the company that we covered back in July, SL Alabama LLC was... which supplies parts to Hyundai, was also found to have employed kids as young as 13. Huashin American Corp. was found to have employed 14-year-olds to assemble auto parts at its Greenville plant, and Ajin Industrial Company was found to have employed at least 10 miners at its facility in Cassetta, Alabama. Other workers at the plants have stated that they worked alongside dozens of miners. The child workers at the Huashin plant were paid as little as $11 an hour, and some were forced to pay a portion of their meager wages to smugglers who trafficked them into the country so it's nice to know that the systems that americans smugly think only happen in other countries have been imported with all the bells and whistles right here to the united states
2: yeah and one thing that i do want to clarify here is uh smart alabama is there that it is actually in all caps which is very similar to the union but they are no there's no relation between (laughs) the smart union and this company that is employing children
0: yeah um and i think that the 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 one of the bigger aspects of this from this more thorough investigation by Reuters that this is pretty much all drawn from our, our our notes here, is that connection that you pointed out to human trafficking. Like not just that they're hiring, you know, kids in the area, which they already mm-hmm. shouldn't be doing, but that they are employing contractors who go out and seek to bring in child labor from and, and seek to, you know, go after vulnerable. Children of migrant families and use them as hyper-exploited labor. And so, as as Lena mentioned at the top, while kids as young as 14 are allowed to do some paid labor in the United States, depending on state laws, that usually is only for farm labor or retail or food service jobs. Uh, Federal law prohibits factory work for kids younger than 16 and prohibits hazardous jobs for any minors, although, of course... Uh, the way you define hazardous uh, leaves a lot of loopholes open for that sort of thing. But still, working in an auto parts plant clearly violates just the, the, the prohibition against factory work for kids younger than 16. And these are mostly like stamping plants. So those are all very hazardous environments. So, uh, I mean, these kids, even if they weren't directly operating hazardous machinery, would be around it pretty much no matter where they are in these plants. And so, but of course... You know, despite this big investigation, uh, I I hate to break the the news of this early. (laughs) There's no big comeuppance here for any (laughs) any Mm. of the people doing this. Only one of the four companies that was identified as using child labor was actually punished in any real way. SL Alabama has faced legal charges specifically after inspectors found seven child workers between the ages of 13 and 16 on the floor there in August. The company was fined a grand total of... $66,000. And that's a combined total by the way between two fines, one from the Federal Department of Labor, one from the Alabama State Department of Labor. I actually believe the state one was slightly larger. Um and the company, SL Alabama, claims that they have fired their staffing agency and that the president of the and that they fired the president of the plant that was using child labor and that they are changing their hiring practices, but of course, We don't have any real way to verify any of that. It's mostly a trust us, you guys. You caught us, but don't worry. We'll shape up. I mean, they canceled the
1: contract and found a fall guy from the company, and we're all, and then they paid $66,000 in fines, which is like, a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket to them, and we're supposed to think this, like, washes their hands of the situation.
2: Yeah, well, and details from the investigation, as we kind of alluded to earlier, reveal a disturbing pattern of not just child labor, but human trafficking, because they discovered that some of the children workers, including a pair of 13- and 15-year-old Guatemalan brothers... Did not live with their families while working at the plant, but were crammed into a house with many other workers owned by the president of the staffing agency employing them. Yeah, is so, just like
0: textbook human trafficking. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah absolutely ridiculous, uh, egregious violations, which, I mean, are being brought up by the press, These are, I mean, Mm -hmm. like, there was the investigation at SLA, Alabama, that led to some minor fines. But the people who are really talking about this are the press. The government itself is doing basically nothing Mm -hmm. to actually combat this, what is very clearly a a systemic issue of uh, exploiting migrant labor, including migrant child labor, and, like... I don't know if you would consider this family separation as well, but it kinda seems like that is the case is you know, that is not being done necessarily by the government, but by the capitalist ruling class.
0: Yeah, I I think of it more as just this is the one of the many many ways that American companies have found to profit from the the impacts of imperialism where they 've basically just found that, oh well, you know United States policy is devastating the economic situation in all these countries. Well, you know it would be a great way to take advantage of that <laughs> i mean that then that 's basically their business model like that 's mm-hmm. the whole model of these these you know uh, human resource firms or like you know labor contractors whatever they want to call themselves but it's it's basically legalized human trafficking uh, and then the cases where maybe it's not quite legal but because it's a corporation it's easy to get away with and I mean of course you know from the companies don't but don't worry folks Hyundai and Kia are on it they're they are definitely going to take care of this problem for sure uh, by Issuing the same sort of busy speak you would expect from people who can pay high-priced lawyers a lot of money, uh, both companies have come out and said that they don't quote condone or tolerate violations of labor law. End quote. But <laughs> okay.
2: I mean, a wow, what a not, what a what a really <laughs> strong statement there. I got, clearly, objectively, <laughs> that's that's not
0: true because this it's not as if the inspectors showed up on the first day these kids were there and were like, aha, <laughs> we caught them. It's like, no, this has been going on for years. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they don't tolerate violations of labor, I'm like, well, that's not, you don't tolerate getting caught, <laughs> violating right. labor law. Uh, but like, this is the thing, like both of the, both Hyundai and Kia are capitalist enterprises. Their, their whole incentive structure is lower labor costs for higher profits. And this, created an avenue for them. So, I mean, the, everything that you're going to hear from these two companies is just damage control. And to as evidence for that, uh, we can just see how Hyundai has already changed their tune on how they plan to deal with Smart Alabama, which is the first company that was caught back in July using child labor, at the time they said, oh, nope, don't worry, we are going to cut all ties with this supplier, we're not going to use them anymore, we do not condone child labor. And since then, they have put out a new statement saying instead, quote, additional oversight is a better course at this time than severing ties with these suppliers, end quote.
1: Oh, my God. That's such a fucking <laughs> underhanded way of saying, like, yeah, we told them we might have to close out the contract and they offered to knock the price down a couple more notches for us.
0: Yeah, it's it's just it's it's so clear. It's one of those slow rolling campaigns where you yeah. come out and you say, oh, no, we hear you and we are going to address this problem. Don't you worry. We'll get right on it and then sit back and are like, OK. Now let's let this simmer down in the press for a while mm-hmm. until everybody forgets about it. And then you put out this mealy worded statement about, well, you know, we really want to help this company get better, <laughs> this yeah, sort yeah. of nonsense. And then you just keep going back to the same thing you were doing before and hope everybody forgets about it. Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's
2: Well, and I can't imagine that this isn't going to be used also as like labor discipline in other cases, because even if they do get rid of the child labor aspects, they're going to be like, well, now our profit margins aren't so good. So labor's got to take a haircut on this, you know, and lower using that to lower wages on all of the other existing workers.
1: Well, and the complicity of the state in this whole scheme is like pretty unsurprising, considering that like they've set up the conditions for all of this stuff to exist um capitalist governments literally have put in policy uh right to work laws aimed at preventing unions that could protect workers from this kind of exploitation specifically and then they get to act shocked when they're like oh my god you hired children (laughs) yeah in america (laughs) like
0: (laughs) 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 yeah no exactly because that's the thing is that's one of the things that's so funny about us laws about this sort of Mm -hmm. thing is at the same time, they'll say, we do not tolerate child labor. That is a bad kind of exploitation. And they're like, we also do not tolerate unions because they prohibit the good kind of exploitation. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's this, it's this bizarre thing of capitalist so-called democracy, where the state has to pretend that they're not just, Entirely in the bag for the companies right. while at the same time being entirely in the bag for the companies. Yeah. So, okay. yeah, and we, I, oh, I was just going to say, and I mean, like, you, you don't have to go to your favorite communist labor podcast Mm -hmm. to to get these sorts of takes. I mean, even in the, the investigation, they Reuters talked to Terry Gerstein, who is a Harvard law professor who said, quote, it seems like the sage was set for this to happen. Plants in remote rural areas, a region with low union density, not enough regulatory enforcement use of staffing agencies End quote. And yeah, I mean, these are all policies enacted by the state to maximize the amount of profit that their clients, the rich, can extract from people. This, so, and, and the only reason we even have the child labor laws, like as we've discussed, is because of class struggle mm-hmm. in the past, and there has been plenty of attempts to roll those back. So you have the same people who are pretending to be shocked and horrified by this who on the other sides of their mouths are trying to roll back policy to basically make this stuff legal. So, yeah. And
1: meanwhile, the whole thing is so utterly see-through that even a Harvard law professor is able yes. to do material analysis about the <laughs> origins of it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When Harvard is being like, damn, you guys are like really Have exploitive. you guys ever heard of
1: material conditions?
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not exactly a source of uh, progressive thought. Uh, not Harvard at all. University. But- I mean, yeah, it's it's hard to come away with a silver lining from this story because there really isn't much of one. Like, it's good that these are getting caught. But like you said, uh, the, most of this has been laid out by the press, not by investigators or regulators or anything and and who knows if they even would have done this expanded investigation if there hadn't been a story and unfortunately it's not as if we can rely rely on an agency like reuters to be out there crusading (laughs) for the working class because if you go look into reuters history that's not their thing this this sort of investigation which is great and i think the reporters who did this investigation did a fantastic job which is why i'm a little surprised they're still at reuters um (laughs) but, but like That's the exception from the capitalist mainstream press. Most of these stories, you never hear about them. So like, this is, as we said at the top when when we first talked about this in July, this sort of stuff is still, even this expanded uh, investigation is the tip of the iceberg. And it's those incentive structures put in place by capitalism that encourage this sort of thing. And until we go after those and improving unions, building up our unions, especially in places like the South is a huge part of that. We're just going to keep seeing this stuff happen.
2: Yeah. Well, in staying in the South, we're going to move to our next story, which is another follow-up, because a couple of months ago we discussed a case in Alabama where a paper mill called West Rock Paper Mill had locked out their employees after the uh, union had decided that they were not going to take... Uh, a ten thousands of a ten thousand dollar it was like ten thousands
0: per person, right? It, it, I think it was like twenty five thousand dollars. Yeah, per person. It was ridiculous.
2: To basically, get rid of any of their control over their schedules and mm-hmm. many other aspects of their working conditions that were previously outlined in their contract. When the workers rejected that contract. The company, instead of going back to the bargaining table or you know giving the workers an upper or putting the workers in the situation where they had to strike, they preemptively locked out all of the workers, and that has actually continued. The company has not done anything to, to besides you know getting a bunch of scab labor in, which they've pulled in from other parts of their company, and uh, that basically are trying to wait out the workers so that they are forced to come back with all of these concessions uh just accepted
0: yeah and so now you know it's dragged on for a couple months uh and so we just wanted to check in on 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 how things were going for these workers and so there was an interview with a local tv station wtvm where they talked with one of the families uh whose uh, the husband works at the mill um and how the lockout's affected them and so Kim Crouch whose whose husband Cliff works at the mill said explained the conditions that they're fighting to fix where she said quote the lack of sleep that they get because they want to be at their children's functions. I've watched him get three or four hours of sleep because he wanted to coach our sons in baseball when they were younger. And he would go sleep three or four hours and go coach a baseball game and then go work a midnight shift and quote. And I mean, just you even get some, some hints about like the ideological pressure that these sort the strikes, you know, put on people where a cliff when he was interviewed by the same folks, said that he felt like a criminal the day after the lockout because of the way the company was treating the workers. And he said that like the strike has really affected the community uh, around the mill, saying, quote, I just don't know if it will ever be the same place that it was. But he did commit that saying "That that walking out and refusing to accept that bribe was still the right thing to do, saying, quote, yes, it's the right thing to do, and I would do it all over again, end quote. And 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 as you said, Lena, the mill has been continuing to operate on scab labor largely loaned from other paper mills as part of West Rock's, like, big network of them. Uh, however, according to, like, uh, one of the articles that I was looking at, there are at least some indications that a lot of those scab labor workers are on loan and will have to go back to their original jobs, like, next month. Uh, so unclear whether they're going to seek a new source of scabs or... Uh, or if that is actually, you know, potentially a point that could increase the workers leverage quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but it's definitely a potential opening because that's been one of the biggest, uh, things that's hurt, you know, the workers as part of this lockout is the fact that not only are they locked out, but the mill is still operating because they're able to bring in the scabs. Right. Well,
1: and they're also just not receiving any help at all from the local, you know, political, kind of a milieu. So we heard from the Alabama political reporter where Jacob Morrison interviewed state representative Debbie Wood, who said, quote, I am very much on the side of management Alabama is an at will state. Companies have the choice to demand that their l- workers work the schedule that best suits them. And to which I say, go to hell, legalists. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. And of course, you know, all of this ignoring the fact that Westrock brought in billions of dollars in profit last year. They're mm-hmm. absolutely not hurting for money. The coffers are full. They're Scrooge McDucking it in there. And uh, z- meanwhile, they're trying to force these workers into absolutely draconian shifts where they never see their families. And during this time, the button paid for politicians feel pretty comfortable openly attacking their own constituents, you know, the workers, the voters, and none of the other politicians from the region who Morrison reached out to would say anything at all in favor of the workers. So they're really getting the short end of the stick from all sides, if you'll permit me to mix metaphors. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and 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 just to add on a quick coda to this, because it's like, Unfortunately, the situation there's no, there has been no resolution of the lockout. Mm. It continues on. These workers continue to hold the line. Uh, But just to give a perspective on Westrock as this gigantic paper conglomerate, uh, just a couple weeks ago, they locked out other workers in a whole different country. Uh, Workers in Quebec refused a low ball wage offer. These are workers who are unionized with Unifor Local 530. And they've been without a contract since the end of August and refused to accept a substandard wage offer. And in response, Westrock did the same thing they did to the workers in Alabama and locked them out. But uh, it does seem like labor law in uh, Quebec is at least slightly more favorable to the workers. Not hugely, mm-hmm. but they were able, basically, it seems like the workers have been able to force Westrock to accept mediation. And of course, You know how we feel about third-party mediation, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I suppose that's better than nothing, which is the remedy that the state has left the workers in Alabama. But I really just wanted to highlight that as this, like, this isn't just a situation in Alabama. This is what Mm -hmm. this company does. Like, they have absolutely no willingness whatsoever to listen to any of their workers about their needs, no matter where they are, whether they're workers in the South, whether they're workers in Canada, like the, this is just who this company is. Yeah.
1: Well, and just instinctively like responding by immediately locking them out is such an insane response. It's like, nobody wants to let their workers in anymore. Like, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's yeah so exactly fucking childish. It's every projection that they try to put on the workers, but like to a cartoonish level,
0: yeah, so solidarity with the the West Rock workers both in Alabama and in Quebec. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, and then moving to and I mean I guess that kind of segues from, you know, a, a semi-international story to a slightly wider international story where we are going to be following up again with the nurses who are on strike for a second day in in the UK. Uh, Where hundreds of thousands of nurses walked out on December 20th, the striking nurses made it clear that they will not accept 12 years of falling wages, where the RCN general secretary, Pat Cullen, said in a statement, the prime minister should ask himself... What is motivating the nursing staff to stand outside their hospitals for a second day so close to Christmas they're prepared to sacrifice a day's pay to have their concerns heard? Their determination stems as much from worries over patient safety and the future of the NHS than personal hard- hardship, which basically, yep. I mean, is almost like every nursing strike that we see, very much so oh, yeah. trying to increase the the quality of care for the patients while you know acknowledging that that is explicitly tied to the compensation and working conditions of the people doing the healthcare work itself
1: yeah absolutely well and as much as i agree with pat cullen's statement i don't know that the prime minister is capable of asking himself what <laughs> motivates nursing staff considering True. i just watched a, a clip on twitter where he asked a homeless man if he'd like to get involved in the finance industry
0: like <laughs> oh that yeah. yeah. was a from different from prime, prime minister yeah rishi yeah. sunak
1: did that yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh
0: yeah my gosh. that that clip is wild yeah he's like doing the standard politician Oh, i'll volunteer at a at a like a, a food bank for the holidays, and, and it's basically just like, oh, have you checked your Bloomberg terminal lately? Like to the, <laughs> yeah. to this guy who is again at a food bank, and it's just like the least. It, it was just a great portrayal of like the if you ever want to see like class difference illustrated, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a very clear and obvious one there. But so in addition to the Royal College of Nurses. Uh, extending their historic strike to a second day, also saw last week, the on the 21st, thousands of ambulance drivers unionized with Unite and GMB also hit the picket lines for the first time in 30 years. And Unite pointed out in a statement that ambulance drivers have seen their wages drop by the equivalent of almost $3,000 just this year because of how high inflation has been in the UK and the, you know, resultant soaring cost of living. Like that's ridiculous. Like imagine like, I don't know, maybe you make, so you make $15 an hour. And so you make $30,000 a year on average. That's you just, that's the equivalent of you losing 10% of your wages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like obviously of course, you know, people have different salaries. So it's a different percentage, but that's a lot of money. (laughs) And that's just in one year. That doesn't even affect you know, the fact that a lot of these folks have suffered stagnant wages for far longer than that. And so, of course, in response, the government came out and was like, oh, wow, that's so much money. You can't lose that much. We have to raise wages. Yeah. Oh, wait, no. That's, <laughs> that's the, the ghost of Christmas alternate reality where we live under socialism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. Uh, instead, the Tory government has responded to the strike by bringing out the troops. Uh, I think that
2: this highlighted a very funny thing because <laughs> there uh was a, some complaints about this not because oh we shouldn't be strike breaking we shouldn't be you know making the the military do right wing policy you know they should be impartial or whatever no it was because the people in the military aren't paid enough
0: <laughs> yeah so first you've got health secretary Steve Barley who said that the striking ambulance workers were making a, quote, conscious choice to inflict harm, end quote, by striking.
1: Conscious choice just, to inflict these nuts.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's just ridiculous. And, and, and the frustrating thing is it's not just the Tories on this because labor also backed using... Uh, the military as scab ambulance drivers which they did do last week on the 21st during this strike but as you were saying lena in addition we got some i'll say frankly quasi-fascist complaints uh, Mm. from some other folks basically you had uh, defense officials that were quoted by the telegraph who said quote You've only got to look at a private soldier on 22,000 pounds a year and whose pay scales have not kept up with inflation for the last decade, having to give up Christmas or come straight off operations to cover for people who want 19% and are already paid in excess of what he or she would be. And it's just not right, end quote.
2: The day, we've I, taken 12 years of cuts and oh, the poor soldier, the imperialist soldier is not paid enough to go in and... Strike, break. Oh, no. Well, I mean, this is
1: a classic example of how hegemony works. Like, what are mm-hmm. unions that never run into trouble? Ever. Never have to worry about a damn thing. Police unions. They're the only ones. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like the the double standard is crazy where it's like, oh, yeah, this professional ambulance driver... I don't really care how much they make, but if a soldier's gonna take me, Nan, to the hospital, <laughs> <then> <laughs> they better be making
0: 40,000 pounds a year. Like, what are you talking about? Like, here's the thing. You know what? Def- unnamed defense officials quoted by the Telegraph, <laughs> I got a solution for you. Here you go. All right, we're gonna take half the British military and disarm them. <laughs> there we go. Not part of the military anymore. Now you're going to raise the average wage of all ambulance drivers in the, in the UK to whatever a living wage would be, whatever these workers are demanding, and then convert those half of the soldiers into civilian ambulance drivers. Now they're paid more. Now there's enough ambulance drivers. And now there isn't a crisis amongst them. There you go. Problem solved. <laughs>
1: yeah, come back next week for Economics 101. With
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous the attacks that these workers are facing during this period. And 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 Unison General Secretary Christina McAney was, I think, dead on when she said, trying to paint ambulance workers and their unions as the bad guys in this dispute won't wash. People know it's ministers who are recklessly putting lives at risk by refusing to negotiate. For them to treat them like this today is utterly shocking. Yeah. I Absolutely. really hope
2: that that's true. Uh, I mean, I don't have much of a... Uh, uh, feel for how things are on the ground in the UK But I mean Here in the United States I don't think That there is as much class consciousness As uh, as She is kind of saying that the people have in, in the UK and I'm really hoping That that is the case that people really do See through this bullshit Where they are you know demonizing These workers who are Literally doing the work Every day of the year
1: yeah, well, and it's it's evident to the people who actually live in their communities, right? Because even despite, like, coordinated attacks by the government and their, you know, cronies in the press, uh, they've been seeing a lot of support on the picket lines. They saw a bunch of firefighters join them in solidarity and striking postal workers as well. I mean, there's so much labor action happening in the UK right now. I imagine it's getting pretty hard for the government to pretend there's not a lot of cross-pollination of solidarity happening.
0: Well, yeah, and that's one of those things too, though, is that like as long as you keep putting militant effort into it, struggle can be self reinforcing in right. that way because struggle builds consciousness and and we've seen that in so many places so yeah i mean as 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 infuriating as these attacks are i all the messaging I've seen from the labor movement in the UK has all been all solidarity and, and all sorts of like interconnections between different unions, which has been really great to see. And so uh, considering I don't expect the Tories to make an about face and suddenly recognize the errors of their ways, I think that that's the sort of solidarity we're going to need as the strike wave will undoubtedly continue into the new year. Yeah, Absolutely.
2: And then in our next story, we're going to be talking about Trader Joe's once again. But this time it is, well, the same but different. We've actually got <laughs> a new union filed in Louisville, Kentucky that happened on December 21st where these Trader Joe's workers have be- have decided to associate with Trader Joe's United, which, you know, as we know, earlier this year, because uh, it is still 2022... <laughs> I had to go look at the calendar real quick because, you know, the end of the year has this weird time haze that happens. But uh, in Minneapolis, and ha- in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Hadley, Massachusetts, uh, there were two union elections from Trader Joe's United that were successful. And there are 100 employees at this Trader Joe's in Louisville, Kentucky, that have decided they want to join that struggle.
0: Hell yeah. We'd love to see this. Uh, and yeah it, the workers that it, so there was a really good uh short perf, more perfect union video from these these folks uh, announcing the the union drive and the workers that they talked to and and some of the other articles that have interviewed folks there it, it seems like a lot of very similar issues you know uh in addition to you know pay and benefits and the sorts of things you expect from any union drive one of the big things that folks mentioned is Feeling like their voices aren't heard when they raise issues that they genuinely feel, you know, would make things better, not just for them, but for the company as a whole. They don't feel that those are actually ever heard, and they instead just get kind of top-down orders from corporate, which is, you know, the situation at most uh, corporations. And so one worker organizer at the store, Connor Hulvey, said in an interview, quote, I think it's hard for higher-ups in a company to really empathize with people when they're not on the ground working with those people. And that opens the door for them to make decisions that don't directly affect them, but affect the tens of thousands of other crew members that work for the company. So I think by nature, there's a disconnect. But with a union contract, we're looking to close that disconnect, end quote. Which I think that's a really, really good way to communicate with the public about unions. Because, you know, you don't go into the morally correct, but perhaps— not as widely popular thing of the more militant line of, well, you know, of course they're union busting. They're they're a capitalist corporation who just exploits all of us and uh, we should be in charge of the company. All true, but, but probably a, le- a lot less likely to build instant solidarity as I think this sort of framing does where you point out where you're like, look, yeah, we want to make things better for us, but a a better – a Trader Joe's that's better for employees – We'll be a better Trader Joe's. And that if we have a union, we can make sure our voice is heard. And that's a message that I think a lot of people can take to heart, especially again when you're re- you're operating in Louisville, not necessarily a you know a, a union stronghold. So yeah, and
2: I think that everybody experiences the disconnect of upper management and mm-hmm. the workers, where you realize very clearly, just through working, that. People in management, sometimes, like even on the local level, but especially on the disconnect between like a corporate level versus the the on the ground shop floor, are is is vast and and definitely something that a lot of people can easily relate to.
0: Yeah. So the workers there, they're they're fighting for a fairer performance review process, better safety procedures, and improved retirement benefits. Uh, The one thing to note there have already been attempts at bargaining with the first two stores to try and get a first contract for the stores that have already unionized. And that's hit some early snags with Trader Joe's corporate refusing to grant time off for workers to take part in bargaining. So they have to take that time unpaid uh, and because they're forcing both stores to uh, to bargain a, at the same time, and B, in person, mm-hmm. meaning that whether it's in Minneapolis or it's in Hadley, the other store has to basically send people to fly to the other city to take part in bargaining. Uh, that sucks. And so the union has filed ULPs against the company for its violations of good faith bargaining, but are continuing to, to you know, fight for a good contract at that bargaining table. And so the workers in Louisville, they held a march on the boss to present their petition to form a union and to demand that the company not interfere with the election process. Although uh, I don't really see that one going forward uh, because we've seen how Trader Joe's has reacted after the stores in Hadley and Minneapolis won their union elections. They closed their wine store in New York city purely to prevent it from unionizing and then ran a, very aggressive Littler Mendelssohn type union busting campaign at their store in Brooklyn, which included illegally firing a union organizer there. So I would expect there to be a another very fierce union busting campaign at this store in Louisville, and I mean. Javi seems the, the 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 worker that they interviewed seems pretty uh, open, pretty clear eyed about this. Where he, he told reporters, "quote It's very clear to us that corporate had a plan of attack to stop this organizing effort right out the gate." End quote. So, yeah, I mean, everybody's trying to use the Starbucks plan to try and stop union organizing. So, I would imagine <laughs> we'll see most of the same tactics in Louisville, but.
1: It's so funny that they're so unimaginative, they'll literally copy a plan that is not working. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah, it's not working, but it is inflicting a lot of pain Sure, on <laughs> a lot of workers. It, it, and that's... As much
1: as that sucks, it's kind of reassuring that that's the best they got. Like... <laughs> yeah,
0: well, and I
2: mean, like, we do have kind of have to put it in perspective a little bit, because it works a little bit. Yeah, and, that's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so it they're willing to take any... Things. Yeah, they're willing to take any opportunity to crush worker worker organizing that they can, even if it means that they are going to end up at the bottom of Howard Schultz's institutions <laughs> yes. of yeah, great yeah. companies like Starbucks <laughs> yeah. did uh
0: that we covered last week. Yeah, so so solidarity with with the workers in Louisville, good mm-hmm. luck with their union drive and be on the lookout for all those littler Mendelson style uh union busting tactics. That's right.
2: Yeah. Well, and in a union victory from the ALU, basically, I don't mm-hmm. want to necessarily give them all of the credit because I know that there are some other people out there on the ground who are fighting alongside the ALU for this sort of thing, but in New York, there was the passage of a Warehouse Worker Protection Act, which was supported by the ALU as well as a couple other organizations that really is going to target Amazon primarily for being one of the largest warehouse work facilities and uh, trying to improve conditions by forcing transparency as well as improving some other conditions for the workers in the warehouse setting.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that we've talked about when covering Amazon that makes the work there so hard on workers and makes it such a shitty place to work is the constant tracking of quotas and the haranguing of workers for what they call time off task, where workers are constantly being monitored all throughout the day. All of their motions are tracked uh, with GPS throughout and RFID tags, like all throughout the facilities. And one of the things that is so frustrating for so many of the workers at Amazon is not just these incredibly uh, draconian quotas, but the fact that there's no transparency in what the quota even is. Mm-hmm. So it, it it can be incredibly difficult when workers face discipline to even know why. So uh, as reported f- uh, for the Huffington post by Dave Jamieson, this new law basically requires that it doesn't, ban companies from using quotas when they run a warehouse, but it requires them to provide information to employees to understand what those quotas are and what the expectations of the company are. It bars companies from firing workers because they failed to make quotas that weren't transparent and bars them from firing workers for taking time off for rest and bathroom breaks when it was not made clear to them that that Basically, the quota that they were on was not allowing them enough time to have their legally scheduled breaks, which is, of course, something the company does not want to be transparent enough about because if it was made clear that that's what the quota was, it would also be very easy for the workers to identify that quota as being illegal. Right. So, yeah.
1: Well, and it's also important to note that this doesn't technically only apply to Amazon warehouses. This applies to any large warehouse in New York, but this is kind of one of those situations where you see a rule posted and you're like, man, I wonder who that's for. It's for Amazon. So, <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, it's because, the Garfield meme.
1: Exactly. <laughs> so because they're by far the largest such distribution network in the country and in New York state, of course. And so thus the bill is largely aimed at their workers. And we've previously talked about the way they track and analyze their workers movements all throughout the day. And like you have mentioned, Dan, penalizing them for time off task, often through a, a Byzantine black box system that's totally opaque uh, and they may just be you know trying to walk from their workstation to another workstation and it takes too long. So this is the second bill of its type in the country after California passed a similar bill which attempted to rein in work quotas at Amazon last year. The ALU strongly supported the bill and hailed its passage. On Twitter, the union said, Quote, this is a huge win for labor. Let's continue fighting for what we deserve. The RWDSU also backed the legislation, saying, quote, The RWDSU has long prioritized the challenge of protecting warehouse workers from stress induced injuries and illness from limitless quotas from limitless quotas and it's It's why we pushed for the introduction of the warehouse worker protection act this year. And I like this because, uh, you know, we criticize unions for trying to back politicians pretty often, but backing specific legislation that Mm -hmm. directly helps and empowers workers is a whole different ball game. Love that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, yeah, this is, look, is this going to make Amazon suddenly a great place to work? No, Mm -hmm. but it gives the workers in new york just that little bit more information that can be used as ammunition to help them keep their jobs if they get you know assailed by amazon for bullshit reasons that they use to fire people all the time and and i mean ultimately this chips away at just one of the worst aspects of the job there which therefore should hopefully give workers a bit more breathing space to actually be able to organize and talk with their coworkers about hey you know the ALU was able to put a lot of pressure to get this bill passed maybe Maybe the ALU is kind of (laughs) cool.
2: Yeah, well, and I think that that's really important to bring up the ability to have transparency to avoid firings, especially when union organizers are systematically fired Mm -hmm. for really arbitrary and uh, unclear reasons. That you know they were they had too many too many hours off task or this or that. When you know if that's really the case then you know amazon should be required to prove that but on top of that it also gives workers who are organizing a little bit more clarity on ways to you know follow the rules in a way that doesn't get them fired which i think is really important as or- yep. as an organizer to know those things because you know if you're just an individual who's breaking the rules cuz you want to break the rules you might get You might not have protections, but, you know, when you're doing collective organizing and your consciousness around these sorts of things um, is, you know, made clearer, at least, you have a lot more ways of not getting fired and continuing your push for a union.
1: Right. Well, and we're always really happy to see this kind of stuff arrive in legislation, in the form of legislation, even though it's relatively uncommon, because every time you have something that's guaranteed by law, that's one less thing you have to fight for in your contract.
0: Well, <laughs> I for, mean, for the moment, well, I mean, that, it, I I don't know. I would I would roll that back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but I mean, it helps. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would just say I don't whereas well, with don't a contract it can be it. Enfo- it's that, that, that you, you know, thing, is, you
2: can put it in there and be like it's already law, so it's just you put it to, in there.
0: You you you're no
1: longer fighting for it, you're fighting for its enforcement, which is
0: right because be, I was going to say like yeah. it, as we've pointed out on the show many times like uh, OSHA exists. It's technically illegal right. to have all sorts of, of of unsafe situations, but the only people who can enforce that are the workers. And so, really, it, it comes back to worker action, whether it's legislation or even just enforcing a law. Right. So that's true. But but moving on to somebody else who is a perpetual lawbreaker, despite mm. the fact that the laws are basically written to help him. Yeah. We we have yet another story about uh, enemy of the workers, Elon Musk. Imagine who, playing
1: a game where all your buddies made the rules and you still have to cheat.
0: <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> <laughs> I mean, doesn't even have to. That's the thing. Like he doesn't have to be this big of an asshole. He could still get rich That's by true. being your standard exploitative capitalist. But instead, uh, once again, the world's thinnest-skinned racist South African billionaire. <laughs> has broken a whole bunch more labor laws. So on Monday, Bloomberg reported, this is on December 19th, that two workers at Tesla were illegally fired for criticizing Musk in some letters that were directed to company management. Uh, The the big thing there, though, is that not only were they fired for criticizing their boss, they were fired for criticizing their boss in letters that were never actually sent.
2: Yeah, which... they were just like basically letters that were like passed between one or two workers that were like drafting it, but then they didn't release it and then somehow the company got a hold of it and was just like, uh, you're not allowed to badmouth the company, so you're fired. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then and, and like so these were these letters, which again were never actually sent, uh they they protested the enforcement of the company's arbitrary return to the office policy while the COVID pandemic is still raging. And another protested Musk's tweets as violating the company's policy on harassment. And so these workers were fired shortly after they drafted the letter, which as you said, they were they' were, Oh, this is attacking the company, but a, how can it be attacking the company if they were never publicly sent? Mm-hmm. This is just like, functionally, this is firing people for like blowing off some steam on the work slack. Yeah. Like that's, essentially like what this is. We love free speech folks.
1: This is like future (laughs) crimes division shit. This is like, yeah. Predictive thought crime, sci-fi crap. (laughs) Which makes sense because Elon loves that shit.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Again, like if you've ever, you know, I mean, uh, Adam Johnson's been all over this point Mm -hmm. since Musk bought Twitter and plenty of other people pointed it out, but I'm going to beat that dead horse a little bit more. (laughs) Like whenever you hear right wingers talk about how they care about freedom of speech, they're lying to you every single time. Every single time when they say they care about freedom of speech, they mean the freedom of themselves to say racial slurs without getting any sort of criticism. They do not mean the freedom of speech of their workers to protest the actions of their bosses. So,
1: well, it- uh- if it smells to you like these firings might be part of a larger pattern, congratulations, you have a great nose. They are. So they can mirror similar layoffs that we've seen at his other company, SpaceX, where several workers were fired in June for actually issuing an open letter this time that called Musk, quote, a frequent source of distraction and embarrassment for us, which is like... If your parents said that about you, you would shrivel and die. Uh, (laughs) An an attorney that represented both the SpaceX and Tesla workers told reporters, quote, These unfortunate firings at Tesla are part of a broader pattern across Elon Musk's companies of a total disregard for workers' legal rights. It is illegal to fire employees for organizing for better workplace conditions, including the right to a harassment-free workplace. And I got to tell you, It is illegal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's the thing. Elon Musk doesn't care, though, so, like, try to get him for all he's worth.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and this all... I mean, we've talked about this before on the show, but in case folks don't know, this is a really long pattern Mm -hmm. with Musk companies. It's not just these two incidents. Like, Tesla specifically has been sued successfully, I believe multiple times, I know at least once, by former black workers for just... Horrific racist treatment, like open use of racial slurs by mm-hmm. management for illegally firing union organizers and just generally abusive work conditions. And like his illegal, like Musk's illegal treatment of workers at Tesla, his choice to break the company's contract with its cleaning staff uh, at Twitter and forcing engineers to sleep in the office. Those are That's made headlines lately, but this all stretches back essentially like forever yeah since he got all that money he's not
1: innovating new ways to be shitty he he was taught how to do this a long time ago
0: (laughs) yeah i mean the 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 apartheid chaos emerald billionaire shockingly is (laughs) is horrible and has been horrible to his workers his entire life
1: so yeah newsflash things are structural (laughs) wow
0: (laughs) yeah And so, like, as you said, like, it's one of those things where it's weird because, like, this is eventually going to go to court, Mm -hmm. and courts are weighted very heavily in Musk's favor, but he's... Also, like, so rich that he just doesn't care about openly breaking the law, which I actually do think gives these workers more of an opening for a successful lawsuit than a lot of others. I hope so. Because, just, because a lot of times, Musk doesn't, like, listen to the PR people that a lot of other billionaires would have. Be like, okay, no, don't say this, say that, so you're not liable for whatever. And he's just like, oh, whatever, I don't care. So, like, hey... This may present a bigger opening. So hopefully these folks, yeah, as you said, take him for as much money as you can possibly get.
1: Yeah, I mean, if a, if, a, if a spot near his torso starts glowing, that's the weak spot. You need to hit it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: That's funny. Well, uh, then in our next bit of worker repression news, we're going to be going down to Florida, where a university is denying to... W- Recognize a union that has existed For a long time They've bargained with in the past And are now suddenly Coming to a new understanding of The very important book The Bible As to (laughs) why they shouldn't Have to recognize this union That has existed again For many, many years And has had contracts In the past
0: Yeah This story (sighs) I only actually saw this because somebody, like, tweeted it out onto our timeline a, a couple weeks after it came out. And I'm glad they did because this story is bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those only in America, I feel like, stories. So, But especially in Florida. <laughs> yes. So, you know, we've covered a lot of different stories about academic institutions busting unions. There's mm-hmm. a lot that we've, from the new school to Columbia, the University of California, Indiana, all sorts of, lots of different ways, lots of creativity out there in the (laughs) union-busting space. But nobody's come up with one this ridiculous that I've seen, at least in a long time. So uh, this is mostly coming out of a report from the Tributary, uh, where this author, uh, writer Andre Pantazzi, writes that Edward Waters University abruptly decided to refuse to recognize its existing faculty union for religious reasons, citing, quote, core values and Christian tenets, end quote. The school broke its contract with the union and refused any further negotiations. Uh, they elaborated their reasons by quoting the Bible, uh, specifically citing passage Jeremiah 29, 11, which says, quote, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future end quote so in, and in, then in I this guess...
1: quote Edward Waters University is the Lord <laughs> I guess that's not transgressive <laughs> of Christian theology at all
0: <laughs> I, I think I think actually what they're saying is not that like that they're the Lord, Mm -hmm. but that, like, because God has a plan for people, that a union at the school would interfere with carrying that out Oh, interesting. I I think Edward Waters University should try (laughs) this out
1: on the IRS next.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, considering how many loopholes we have for religious institutions in this country, that actually might work. Shit. (laughs) 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 Um, But, yeah, like, So in a statement, the school said the assertion of the university's rights as a religious educational institution acknowledged by the Supreme Court of the United States and the National Labor Relations Board will also allow EWU to be driven by its faith-based Christian mission rather than the political agendas often associated with federal labor policies, end quote. And so... It's for some background on this, Edward Waters is a private religious HBCU and HBCU. If folks don't know, it's an acronym for a group of, of historically black colleges and universities. And these are largely, uh, institutions that were set up during reconstruction right after the civil war to provide, uh, you know, institutions of higher learning for black folks who often were excluded from institutions of higher learning in the rest of the country. And so, Edward Waters was founded in Jacksonville, Florida in 1866 as the first primarily black college in Florida. And the school maintains an affiliation with the AME church. Uh, And the school is leaning on a ruling by the Trump era NLRB back in 2020 and a federal court case from the same time period, which made it easier for religious schools to argue that they are not required to recognize unions of their employees. And so this whole thing rests on the idea that like it would be an undue burden for for religious institutions to be required to follow labor law, essentially. Um, And because of the way that the courts use protection of religion as a way to protect companies, uh, all sorts of places have figured out how to use that as a loophole here. But I just don't
2: think. I think that they forget that God's plan is for the workers to own the world.
0: I'm, I for, yeah, well, they always, I mean, this is the thing. Like, I I don't know the Bible that well. I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I've, I've been a non-believer my whole life. But, like, I am I feel like I remember this part. there's like, what, the meek shall inherit the earth or something? I of yeah, well, like people forget that part. I mean, that's <laughs> the thing
1: about uh, being creative with your theology is you can say shit like, look, you're going to inherit the earth. So how about you don't worry about it for now? Yeah. You know, and that, that ends up being the attitude. But I think what they're really forgetting is that there's only one thing Bibles are known to stop, and that's a bullet if you keep a pocket Bible right in front of your heart. <laughs> they don't stop unions.
0: <laughs> yeah, so one of the aspects, though, that I actually found the wildest about this story, and one of the most frustrating, because if you just tell me private religious college in Florida does some heinous shit to its union, I'd be like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, yeah, all right, that, that fits a pattern. I get that. The thing, though, that it's really extra frustrating on top of this is that one of the members of the board at Edward Waters University, who defended this move pretty vociferously, is also a vice president of the International Longshoremen's Association, which is the uh, dock workers union on the East Coast. Right. So Charles Spencer, who is on the board of the university and is a, a international VP of the ILA... He claimed that the move to decertify their union was not a big deal, saying, quote, there are a million schools in these continental United States. There are many that have unions and many that don't have unions. Imagine and- thinking it's okay.
2: It's you know, it's just fine if there aren't unions. You know, if if the capitalists wanna exploit these people to all ends of the earth, that's just, you know, that's just how it works. That's I mean, okay. I- I what? How do you become a vice president? I mean, besides obviously, the answer is class collaborationism of of a major militant union with this sort of attitude.
1: Well, isn't the ILU's not quite as militant as the ILWU on the West Coast? You, right? You mean the ILA? Oh, the ILA. Right.
0: There's yeah, a lot of longshore no, uh, unions. <laughs> no, and uh, stay tuned eventually mm. <laughs> for a patron episode about the ILA. Uh, the ILA, uh, has had kind of a, there's a reason there is not one union that covers dock workers on both coasts. I'll just put it that way. Okay. <laughs> uh, and there's also a reason that the one that we like to cite as the good one is the ILWU. Yeah. <laughs> so, Oh, well, I appreciate that correction. <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot of issues with East coast, long short unions, uh, involvement. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details anyway. Yeah, okay, Sure. Uh, <laughs> More, I, we don't, that, that could be, that will be. Become a patron episode. for yeah. exciting news in the future. If you think these <laughs> yeah. rabbit
1: holes sound fascinating. <laughs> uh. But
0: no, but I mean, but it, I think this is import, important. And like, because we're, I mentioned this for a reason, because it's not just that, like, oh, I can't believe a union official would say this, but it's like that speaks. To what business unionism does, because, you know, you'll see people sometimes who will say, make this line like, yeah, okay, sometimes unions have bad leadership, but you can't just, you can't blame all this stuff on leadership. These are are worker-run institutions, and it's like, well, okay, yeah, of course, you can't blame everything on the unions, but this sort of an attitude from an international vice president— okay you're just, there's a million schools, some have unions, some have don't okay there's a million shipping firms, mm-hmm. some have unions, some don't like is that the attitude if you're a longshoreman in Mobile Alabama or like I don't know Charleston South Carolina or fuck it New, New York anywhere of them these east coast ports is that the attitude you want the leadership of your union to have because that's the argument that he's making that it's fine for places to be non-union that's totally kosher and cool as long as it's you know an institution that he's associated with and and will you know that the the administration will make more money from if they have a cheaper contract with their teachers. And so
1: and it really just belies that, you know, he either doesn't understand or more likely is willfully ignorant of the fact that like representing workers and representing anti-worker institutions are structural positions. And maybe you shouldn't occupy one on each side of the fence. Absolutely. (laughs) And
2: this also, I mean, is an exhaust, an exacerbation of the, the, uh, the critique of, class collaborationism in, in in racist means i mean as a historically black college workers having a representation seems pretty important considering the grand history of racism and and labor suppression in like black and 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 poc communities and just saying no nah, this play this is fine we're allowed we, this one's fine I don't know. I mean, we could probably go on forever about why this is ridiculous, but it just, to me, highlights that as well.
0: Well, and, and so faculty at Edward Waters, as you'd mentioned earlier, like in the story, Lena, like they first unionized back in the 90s. So this is not, this is not some new thing. It's not mm. like they unionized in 2018 and then they decided, oh, we don't like this union, we're getting rid of them. That would still be bad. But, you know, there's been a union there for over 20 years, and they recently bargained for an increased, an improved contract after they'd been working under the same agreement for nearly years. Two decades, so um, maybe the union should have been a little more active before now, but that doesn 't really matter but so the the militant push by the faculty in recent years to improve minimum salaries for workers, which can currently be as low as twenty eight thousand dollars a year, uh, like clearly influenced the move by the school to bust the union. And to just let's, you know, uh, why, why, you know, we already got enough ridiculous nonsense in this story. Let's add another piece to it (laughs) because the tributary also noted in their, their article that at the same time the school is busting the union. At the same time, their ILA VP board member is saying it's fine for places not to have unions. The school launched their new A. Philip Randolph Institute, which is uh, named to honor one of the country's most prominent historical black labor leaders. And after the school moved to break the union, the executive director they had just hired to run that institute resigned in protest, which, good for them, Mm -hmm. correct move, uh, glad that they actually had a spine uh, yeah. because, yeah, it's like it's like I'm going to open the like, I don't know, Walter Ruther School for Organizing Auto Plants. And at the same time, uh, I'm going to go over here and like uh, help Ford break the UAW or something. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. How, how many
1: politicians have inaugurated an MLK Junior Boulevard yes. and then turned around and crushed the black workers in their city? Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much on this. But it it all ties in, though, when we go and look at the material forces in play here, you start to get a better picture. The recent years, EWU has taken a ton of different measures to try and slash costs and increase profits, which included evicting students from housing they were told would be covered for free by scholarships and allowing school housing broadly to decay with a complete lack of maintenance and upkeep. And so this all fits into that same pattern we've talked about in in academia and so many other places, like the fact that the new school spends more than half of their budget not on teachers, not on facilities, not on anything for students, but just on administration Mm -hmm. because that's how they can extract profits by lowering wages for everybody else. And so this, this also fits in to a pattern, unfortunately, of this religious loophole being used by other schools. So like a uh, Catholic school St. Leo university, which is also in Florida, broke its contract with its workers last year is fighting the same case. And so there's a lawsuit against that school that's working its way through the legal system. But again, it's been over a year and, you know, we just saw like, we're, we're potentially going to see even more political changes in the next two years. So who knows if we'll actually get, an official ruling to change that to like, while we have a currently like, you know, pretty friendly general counsel for the NLRB, Jennifer Abruzzo, because she said she'd like to overturn the loophole, but that hasn't happened yet. And her time on the board's relatively going to be relatively limited, likely. So, I mean, we'll see if there's any redress from the NLRB. So far, multiple faculty members have resigned since the move, and some members of the, the union have talked about the possibility of a strike in addition to the ULPs that they've already fired. But unfortunately, I think un- un- until the NLRB issues a new ruling reversing that that precedence, it looks like these workers are facing an uphill legal battle because that shield of religious liberty that that corporations have figured out how to weaponize has become so strong. So... I don't know. It's just I just thought this was a particularly egregious look at like the the innumerable ways the companies and their lawyers will go after unions.
2: Yeah. Well, as we normally do at the end of episodes, we want to check in with the Starbucks workers as well. I mean, solidarity with the people in Florida fighting against this ridiculous uh you know trying to get rid of their union but uh in i guess other ways in which the uh work or the capitalist class are trying to get rid of unions we guess we'll continue with starbucks as i was mentioning so this past weekend The Double Down National Strike uh, had happened, which we had covered previously, and uh, a lot of the workers returned to entirely trashed workplaces where the scab workers, who obviously don't know how to do the job as well, have basically shown that the workers are overworked and need more accommodations to be able to uh get their work done, or at the very least, these fucking scabs shouldn't be there because they don't actually know how to make these places run.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like, and the pictures are just terrible. Like, I get that. Okay, you you're forced into a new st- store to, although forced, you can you can always choose not to scab. Mm-hmm. But so I don't want to empathize with the scabs, but like you show up to a store, you don't know where the stuff is. Oh, maybe when you leave, some stuff's going to be a little messy. The pictures are not a little messy. Like these places were fucking trashed. And the fact that they tore down the pride flag, I think like that was, that was really bad. Cause like, yeah, like the, the folks in Richmond, they pointed out, cause they're, they're, they posted pictures on, on Twitter of, of the stores in Richmond and Houston, where these scabs like left the stores trashed. And in Richmond, they said they had, you know, multiple healthcare health code violations and that generated a ton of extra work for the returning workers and and yeah the the scabs in Houston had torn down the pride flag that the workers had put up in their store in addition to trashing the mm-hmm. the place so just insult added on to injury and and honestly this stuff is like this is the most petty way to respond to a strike cuz it's like you're just making more work for these folks they're not going to stop striking because you did this shit. Well, and, like,
1: and also like leaving the store in this condition is exactly the kind of thing you pretend to fire union organizers. Yes, over, even when they didn't do it.
0: Exactly. Yeah, oh, and yeah. that just absolutely and that just points out the the total lie to that all the the various nonsense excuses they mm-hmm. come up with for firing all these union organizers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, as disheartening as that is, we did also manage to get some good news on Monday. So after seven months of being illegally fired for organizing, Starbucks did agree to rehire Tyler Hoffman at the North Arthur Ashe store, clear his disciplinary record and pay him full back pay. Uh, They do avoid any admission of wrongdoing, but this agreement clearly shows that they understood all along that the firing was retaliatory and illegal. Uh, this is in Richmond, Virginia.
0: Yeah, and so, like, workers are very happy to get Tyler back. Um, I, the, the, the store's union put out a statement saying workers are ecstatic, ecstatic to have Tyler return to their store and look forward to continuing to build a real partnership with Starbucks and look forward to bargaining a good contract with the company in good faith. So, I mean, we'll see how, how that latter part goes. I think we're going to need a few more strikes to get there. But, um, yeah.
2: Well, and, you know, in order to do that, building power of their union is important. And as they continue to do, there are more union victories because in Nevada, they have just got their first unionized Starbucks with Starbucks Workers United at the Rainbow and Oakley store, uh, which voted 11 to 7 in favor of unionizing on Tuesday, December 20th in Las Vegas. Um, and so that's really exciting. That you know, even though it's been over a year, we are still seeing an expansion of this workers' movement, and I I just love to see it, and I think that yeah. uh, my co-hosts here do as well.
0: <laughs> well, I I want say I was a little surprised this was the first store to unionize in Nevada because like, not that you know, it's that it's necessarily like. Union state number one, but Las Vegas specifically Mm -hmm. has a, is like a big stronghold for like unite here is, is really, really big in Las Vegas because of all the, the workers at the casinos. And there's a huge portion of them that are unionized and pretty militant. So, I mean, Hey, it's a little weird that it's taken this long to get a union store in Las Vegas, but better late than never. And now that there's one, uh, I th- I'm really, really doubting that, this, that it will be the only store in Las Vegas we see unionized in the short term. Because usually we've seen so many of these cities, like, once you get that first union store in there, and it, it's like, this is now real, right. I feel like, to so many of the workers in there who, who've been like, you follow it on Twitter, but it can be, be like, well, yeah, but none of the stores in my area like that do i really want to stick my mm-hmm. neck out and be the first person easy target which is totally understandable well but I mean, so now that there's a store there i think that bodes really well for the continued growth of the movement in las yeah. vegas
1: well it's a pattern that we saw in pittsburgh it's a pattern that we saw in seattle it's a pattern that we saw statewide in some places like michigan so yeah i think you're absolutely right yeah
2: yeah well, and speaking of being absolutely right, here's the meme review. <laughs> uh,
0: this yeah. I,
2: I did want, There was a lot of memes going around about uh, Santa Claus denial, and I wanted to pull one of them because I thought that they were pretty funny. Although I do believe that because uh, we're recording this on Monday, the twenty sixth. Yesterday being Christmas, I believe today is like the first day of Kwanzaa. But uh, I, with the the Santa believer meme, I'm, we're gonna. I have this one that's like a, a mental gymnastics meme where. It's basically just someone walking and then saying, ta-da, and then the bottom part of it is just a series of, of um, you know, gymnastic things. But anyway, the top one is... Uh Santa Believer Mental Gymnastics. Uh Sa- Santa brings everyone their presents on Christmas night with his magic and it's like ta-da. It's a very easy explanation but then uh the next one is the Santa Denier Mental Gymnastics which is a-, a a series that I find pretty funny. It's like uh he he's made up by corporations to sell Christmas stuff but he but literally all parents are also part of the same conspiracy to make their children behave. And then the next one is regular people just buy and wrap all these Christmas presents. Cookies just happen to be eaten the next day and Santa at the mall is just an imposter in disguise. Which I just <laughs> think I think it's funny because of you know the, I don't know. Well, I mean I
1: I, I always look- I think it's important to try and and apply Kantian transcendental logic to this and understand that uh, it's not just that the Santa at the mall is real, it's that all Santas are real. And it's not a conspiracy. Your parents are also actually Santa. <laughs> it's true. It's All of it's true.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, I was Man. just... I always just like in these because, you know, this format gets used a lot. Mm -hmm. And like the the mental gymnastics one at the bottom. Well, I like that it's like, okay, somebody's on the uneven bars or they're on the like rings. Mm -hmm. And the last one is just a guy with a jetpack flying over a burning car.
1: Well, I also like that the guy doing all of the like really cool gymnastic shit and flying over a burning car is supposed to be the person who's wrong, even though they just (laughs) did a ton of cool shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So... Uh, the next one is, is is from excellent meme page, Cats with Hard Hats, where you've got it, just the the top of the, you've got a, basically a picture of a horrible snowstorm with a, a jeep trying to get through it. And then it's captioned, everyone, yay, it's a snowstorm, no work. And then me and the homies getting called in and then you've got like the cat there with like a, a hat on in front of this, this snowed in nightmare just just caption this is shit <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah definitely i saw a lot of people who did actually end up getting called in and like businesses that were like celebrating being open in the middle of a fucking snowstorm which is just absolutely disgraceful
1: yeah don't ever go to those businesses i mean one don't support them if they do that but two stay inside during a snowstorm. Uh (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, uh, speaking of being right yet again, uh, our next meme just says, when someone starts asking you questions as soon as you clock in, and then it has a Dalmatian sitting behind a desk with a paw up to you as if to tell you to hold your horses, and it says, bruh, hold on. (laughs) Don't even talk to me until I've been clocked in for 15 minutes and then figured out how to waste most of them.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I yeah, thought like, would like I, this one. I just showed up. I've been waiting to take my morning dump on the clock all morning. Yeah. You gotta gimme a second.
2: <laughs> <laughs> there are
1: tickets in the queue ahead of your issue. Please be patient.
2: <laughs> yeah. And then um, the next one is a the motherfucking share zone, which I, I really liked this one because, you know, as someone who makes mistakes on occasion, I, I just really appreciate this. Is uh, if you if you can't handle me at my worst. Can't say I blame you, partner, or p- partner. Mighty big problems with it, <laughs> an apostrophe and, and problems, and it's just this skeleton smoking a, a pipe, and, it, you know, it's just classic chair zone. Yeah, uh, I, I like it.
1: Smoking a pipe that looks like it's full of magma. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's just like Mount Doom in there yeah. or some shit. Really <laughs> spiky teeth on this skeleton.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And so our last one... We've got a two-panel of an Ekans from uh, the Pokemon from Pokemon. The most incredibly clever name mm-hmm. to ever exist for a Pokemon. It's definitely not just snake backwards. Um, and Whoa. so you've got <laughs> the, the Ekans just sitting there, like I may not mow much, but I know workers make everything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh,
1: if you can only carry one thought in your dumb little head, I think that's the one. So bravo, that's right. Little Ekans. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right. That's right. Well, uh, we want to thank you all for listening. And if you support the show and are a patron, we definitely appreciate that, as we are entirely listener-supported. If you would like to become a patron and get access to all of our bonus content, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. You can follow us on all the pl- places. If you want all the different links, you can go to workstoppagepod.com, where all of that stuff is linked. You can also jump in the Discord, because there's all sorts of information in the Rules channel, and you know you can also just hang out with us. And, you know, follow on on Twitter at Facebook Villain In, follow the pod, at works stoppage pod, you know, Dan tweets all sorts of interesting stuff over there and retweets stuff. Um, and then you can also listen to Beep People at us. You can listen to Red Game Table, and as always, labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever.
0: Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.